the way we've always done things is becoming less and less appropriate because we're constantly changing the way that we do things. I mean, we have seen the rise and fall of communism and Marxism, entire countries and millions of lives that have gone with them. The sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s, we've seen the emergence of the internet and social media, which has done wonders in communicating and transferring information, but has almost totally eroded our ability to have conversations with one another. And of course, with the rise of the internet comes what Thomas Friedman calls the flattening of the world, or probably the more familiar term that you're familiar with is globalism. We're so interconnected now that the things that happen on the other side of the world are almost immediately broadcasted here, and they have an immediate effect on our economy and our stock market, etc. I mean, listen, a hundred years ago, nobody in America cared about what happened in Russia because it had no impact on our daily lives here, and it would take months for information about what happened to get here. But now that's not the case. We watch the news like hawks because if North Korea begins to mobilize their army or if a natural disaster wipes out the factories and export, uh, and export facilities in China or if a politician sends an explicit photograph to someone other than their spouse or if Saudi Arabia makes progress in their 2030 accord to be on completely renewable energy by 2030 and drastically lower their oil exports, etc., etc., all of these things now have an immediate impact on us and we're in this constant state of worry and fear of what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next? We're seeing the emergence of artificial intelligence, and this is kind of freaking us out. I mean, I know you've probably all experienced that you're in a conversation with somebody, and you talk about, you know, a, a certain brand of something, and then you open up your Facebook, and you see an ad for it right there, right? They're listening right now. They're listening. We experience the constant change in the definitions of gender and sexuality. and the, We've seen the rise of the nuns, right? Those who consider themselves unaffiliated with any sort of religion whatsoever. So many changes in travel and terrorism, civil rights, 3D printing, the mapping of the human genome, the rise and the prevalence of country rap artists like Florida Georgia Line. I mean, come on. How did that happen in the last 50 years? And with all of these changes over the last half a century, it's no wonder that there's so much social unrest and so much anxiety and so much confusion in the world. We're constantly changing the way that we do things, and we're constantly changing the way that we understand the world. And just as soon as we get comfortable with one way of doing things, or one way of believing, or one way of driving, or traveling, or communication, some other innovative method comes along, and we're forced to either adapt or just be left behind in the fast-paced transformation of society as we know it. I mean, I can remember our daughter Lila, she's five years old. Five years ago, whenever she was born, the conventional wisdom of the day was, listen, layer on her back, don't layer on her stomach, right? That's bad if you layer on her stomach, layer on her back. And then not 18 months later, Clara is born, and then we're told, hey, lay them on their stomach, don't lay them on their back, lay them on their stomach. It's just constant flip-flop. And I, I saw a, a meme on Facebook the other day, and, and you can add that to the list of all the societal changes, <laughs> memes, the, the, the arrival of this, of this whole genre of media, memes, but it captured this idea that I'm talking about perfectly, and here's what it said. Eat five small meals per day and run. Also, eat only breakfast and dinner and walk. Also, eat lots of protein and lift, and don't even do any cardio. It's bad for your joints. Also, don't eat too much protein, and make sure that you're sleeping a lot, but don't be sedentary. But don't be too active. It's bad for your blood pressure. Make sure that you replace all your lost salt, but never eat too much sodium. It's easy. Just eat vegetables. 
Don't eat potatoes, though, or corn. Fruit is obviously good for you, and also it's all sugar and is bad for you. Sugar, I forgot to mention, is a vital source of quick-burning carbohydrates that your brain needs to survive, and you should avoid it at all costs. Protein is hurting your kidneys. Make sure you eat a lot of it. Drink water. Never starve yourself unless you call it intermittent fasting, and then it's okay to starve yourself just a little bit. But don't overhydrate. Being vegan is obviously the healthiest lifestyle, but also no, it's not. Fish is obviously super good for you and is full of mercury and is killing you, but also make sure that you get some sun every day for some vitamin D and some skin cancer. <laughs> totally captures that, that idea perfectly. I mean, can you resonate with this? I know I can. Um, it feels like what we think to be true is constantly being turned upside down, and every other day we prove ourselves wrong about something that we had just proven ourselves wrong about two weeks ago. It's such a mess to try to keep up with everything, and it has led to such widespread anxiety and depression that doctors are saying they have never seen anything like this. Modern science has never seen the amount of anxiety prescriptions and depression prescriptions that are being given out. It's just, it's an epidemic almost. But, but here's the thing. This isn't new, what we're experiencing, what we're feeling. This isn't new. And in fact, Jesus did this very kind of thing, constantly turning the conventional wisdom upside down on its head. He did this all the time. This is what angered the religious people of his day. But it's also what attracted the irreligious people to come to Jesus. But he didn't do this to add to the chaos of the social change that we kind of just talked about. No, he came to show us the way that things truly were. He came to teach us and to show us a better way, the way that things actually are, a way that is timeless and that is relevant and that is unchanging. I mean, have you ever noticed that the majority of Jesus' teaching doesn't contain any kind of commands? It doesn't. If you read the majority of his parables, the majority of his teaching in the Gospels, you won't find very many commands. The vast majority of it is just statements about reality. He says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Whoever will be greatest among you must be servant of all. It's not what goes into a person that defiles him. It's what comes out of him. Jesus isn't teaching us what to do, which is constantly changing. He is teaching us the way that the world works. He's showing us how God has designed the cosmos to function and how he has designed us to flourish and to grow. And these truths that Jesus shows us, they're constant, they're timeless, and they're unchanging. And if we're going to escape the chaotic mess that we have found ourselves in in 2019, 21st century Western post-Christian America, then we need to align our lives with the unchanging truth of Jesus. But that's not to say that Jesus didn't teach us how to live. He did. He just did it primarily by example. Right? In other words, he taught us the truth to live by, and he showed us the way to live. He showed us the way, and he taught us the truth. And I believe that this passage of Scripture gives us a glimpse of both of these methods, Jesus showing us the way and Jesus teaching us the truth, and we're going to look at both of them. We'll begin with the way. Jesus showing us the way. Look at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He went out again. This is Jesus. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And now Levi is probably also Matthew. A lot of people back in the day, they had two different names, Simon Peter. Um, so Levi here is probably the same person as Matthew. 
So he saw Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now in the parallel account in Luke chapter 5, I I like what Luke had to say about Levi following Jesus. Luke describes it this way. Jesus said, follow me, and then it says that Levi left everything behind and followed Jesus. He added that little tidbit in there. I think it's important because you've got to understand, tax collectors in the day, they were employed by the Roman Empire, right? And so if you just left your post, that was considered treason. Probably a headhunter would be out looking for you to kill you, right? So the fact that Levi dropped everything, left his tax collector booth, and followed Jesus is incredibly important example for us to see. But have you ever wondered why Jesus can just walk up to these people and just say, follow me, and they just drop everything behind and do so? Like, have you ever wondered? Like, that's all the information that we get in the Gospels. That's all that we see. Jesus walks up and says, follow me. They leave their nets, they follow Jesus. He walks up to the tax collector, follow me. He leaves behind, his head's going to get cut off, he knows it, and he's going to go follow Jesus. Like, but here's the thing. There wasn't some, like, divine power that just forced these people and compelled them like robots to just say, okay, and follow Jesus. That, that's not what was going on here. There, there's a lot of background behind wh- what Jesus is saying when he looks at these men and says, follow me, that helps us understand why they would be so eager to try to drop everything and follow after Jesus. And the background that we need to understand is how discipleship worked in the first century. So it was the aspiration of every single Jewish child to become a rabbi, okay? A rabbi, you can think of a rabbi as like seminary president, okay? The the smartest, most brilliant, you know, devout men of God. They enjoyed a very high place in society. They were very esteemed men. The rabbis were very looked up to, and the culture and the society kind of catered around them, right? They were they were the top class citizens of society. So it was the the dream of every Jewish child to, to grow up and to become a rabbi. And so what they would do is they would begin training as soon as they were able to read and write and talk, as soon as when they were they were little, their parents would teach their children to memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. By the time they were 11, they would have memorized the entire Torah. Now, you know how long it took me to memorize my phone number? (laughs) Try memorizing the entire book of Numbers, let alone the whole Torah. So if by the time you were 11, you had the whole Torah memorized and you could recite it, then the best of the best of those kids they would get to graduate on into kind of like a second-tier level of education where they would go and study under a teacher, and they would spend the rest of their time, you know, five, six, seven years to their 16, 17 years old, memorizing the rest of the Old Testament, okay, and understanding the law. And those that didn't make the cut, they would go get a craft. They would go learn a trade. They would become fishermen. They would become tax collectors. They would become stonemasons. They would go to work to provide for their families. So then you've got this, this, this core group that's the best of the best of these young kids, and they grow up, and they learn the rest of the Old Testament, and they memorize it. And then when they're 17, 18 years old, after they've memorized the rest of the Old Testament, then the rabbis come by, and they examine all of the students, and they look for the best of the best of the best. And they point to them, and they say, you, follow me. You, follow me. You, follow me. And at that point, That's literally what those students did. They followed their rabbi. The rest who didn't make the cut, just like the previous generation before them, they would go and learn a trade, right? But the ones that followed the rabbi, that's literally exactly what they would do. 
they would follow him. They went everywhere the rabbi went. They ate with him. They slept next to him. They traveled with him. They imitated him. They learned everything that, they, that he taught them. They imitated his way of living, his lifestyle. They, they, he, the rabbi would replicate himself into his disciples. And then by the time these disciples are about 30 years old, then their rabbi, if, if he saw fit, would bless them to go out and they would become rabbis of their own, look for disciples to make and continue on the tradition, enjoying the high class and status of the culture. Now, there were several different um, um, sects, I guess you could say, traditions, Jewish traditions. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you guys are familiar with all of them. You had the Essenes, you had the Hellenists, you know, you had the Zealots, you had all these different traditions, right? Um, that, that, you could, that you could grow up in. It's, it's very similar to how we have Baptists and Methodists and German Baptists, you know, and, and, and the Pharisees, they emphasized, you know, the keeping of the law. And, uh, you know, and it's the same thing, like, like Baptists, you know, we emphasize the importance of baptism, you know, and German Baptists, they, I don't know, they emphasize being German. I don't know what the difference is there. But um, anyway, you know, there's, there's different emphases in each of these traditions. And the Pharisees, they emphasized very heavily the keeping of the law. And so what struck me as interesting and what I started digging into is when Jesus comes onto the scene, he's walking up and he's, he's fulfilling these rabbinic traditions. He's going to people and say, follow me. And they would have understood exactly what that meant. This was something that a rabbi did to his disciples. And they would have followed him. And you have Jesus, as we learned in the last chapter, he's teaching in the synagogue. Not just anybody could do that. He's teaching in the synagogue. And he has other Pharisees that are referring to him as teacher. You didn't do that to somebody who wasn't a well-known teacher. So I started doing some digging, started doing some research, and it's all speculation. I can point you to some journals and things that kind of talk about this. Um, but um, it's, very, it's quite possible, it's, this isn't, I'm not saying this is fact, okay, but it's quite possible that the tradition that Jesus grew up in learning was the Pharisaic tradition. So what I'm saying is it's quite possible that Jesus was a Pharisee himself. Now remove from your mind all of the negative connotation that you have about what a Pharisee is. Now to modern day when we say you're a Pharisee, we're saying that you're a legalistic hypocrite. That's... Unfortunately, that's what that has the connotation that has come to that term. But this was just a tradition of teaching in the first century that didn't have any negative connotation whatsoever. Okay, so whenever I'm saying that Jesus was probably a Pharisee, I'm just saying he was probably brought up in that tradition, right? And, and listen, to this this is what Josephus, who was a first century historian, this is what he has to say. Josephus indicates that the Pharisees received the backing and the goodwill of the common people, apparently in contrast to the more elite Sadducees associated with the ruling classes. In general, whereas the Sadducees were aristocratic and monarchist, the Pharisees were eclectic, popular, and more democratic. The Pharisaic position is exemplified by the assertion that, or this is a motto that they would say, the Pharisees would teach us, they would say, a learned orphan takes precedence over an ignorant high priest. The Pharisees cared more about how much you knew rather than the tribe that you came from. If you knew more as an orphan, as an illegitimate child, that nobody knew who you belonged to, but if you knew more than, than a, a high priest from the tribe of Levi, right? The Pharisees would put more weight upon you. They would look at you and say, you are more blessed. 
Also, Phariseeism, Josephus goes on to say, was a more participatory form of Judaism in which rituals were not monopolized by an inherited priesthood, but rather they could be performed by all adult Jews individually or collectively whose leaders were not determined by birth, but by scholarly achievement. This is who the Pharisees were, and this is the emphasis that they made. Now, do you remember anything from the life of Jesus that showed how smart he was? Maybe when he was a kid, he's 12 years old, he's in the temple, and he's talking with the rulers there in the temple, probably some Pharisees, some Sadducees, whatever, and he is asking them questions, and he is astounding them with the questions that he's asking, and he is astounding them with the answers that he is giving to their questions. So it's not, unco- it's not you know, unprobable to think that at a very young age, the Pharisees, looking at this guy from some no-name backwater town, would have had their eye on him. And if Jesus wasn't a Pharisee, at the very least, the Pharisees probably considered him one of their own, okay? So here's the point that I'm trying to get, you, to get you to see. Jesus, when he comes on the scene and starts looking at these men and saying, hey, come follow me, come follow me, and he's teaching in the synagogue, it's not just, he doesn't just randomly show up out of nowhere and just, they just allow him to do these things. No, he was raised in a tradition. He was already regarded as a rabbi. He was already regarded as a teacher. And so when these men were confronted by Jesus, and he reached out his hand and issued an invitation to follow him. These were the guys who didn't make the cut. These were the guys who weren't the best of the best. These were the guys who said, no, you just, you go become a fisherman. You go become a tax collector. You go become a carpenter. When Jesus issued an invitation to follow him, immediately what came to the minds of these people was the idea that I finally have the opportunity to live up to everything that I've ever dreamed of. What an amazing opportunity. This rabbi is inviting me to come follow him. I was rejected by everybody else, but this guy, he's going to teach me. He's going to learn, and I'm going to enjoy, and maybe I can become a rabbi one day. This was in the minds of these men. And of course, seeing and hearing the miracles and the workings and the teachings of Jesus made that invitation much more irresistible. But remember what these men signed up for by becoming his disciples. Discipleship meant learning not only the teachings of Jesus, but the way of Jesus, right? Meaning the way he lived his life, his lifestyle, his works, his miracles, his power. Being a disciple of Jesus meant learning to do all of these things. Now in the first two chapters, we've learned that the message of Jesus, that what he came to preach was this. He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Now I ask you a question, What is the gospel at this point in time? When Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, what does he mean by gospel? What he doesn't mean is, I have died on the cross for your sins and bore the wrath of God, and I've been buried, and I've been rose again, and I've ascended to heaven. He doesn't mean that. That hasn't happened yet. That's not what Jesus means when he says, believe the gospel. What Jesus means when he says, believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus was preaching was that the kingdom was at hand. The kingdom of God is here. And then, as we learned in small group just a few weeks ago, we see Jesus demonstrating that reality. So that was what he taught. The kingdom is here. He demonstrates this reality and the fact that he casts out demons and he's healing people and healing lepers. And last week, with the story of the paralytic, as Pastor Stephen preached to us, we learned that also what the kingdom brought with it was the, forgive, was the forgiveness of sins. In God's kingdom... Neither sickness nor pain nor sin can exist. 
And Jesus is the king who inaugurates his kingdom here on earth. The kingdom is a new way of living. It's a new way of living that Jesus taught his disciples. And that's exactly what we see happening later on in Mark chapter 6, which we'll get to at some point in this Mark series. It'll probably be like a year from now. Um, But that's what Jesus does. He sends his disciples out in pairs. And you know what they do? They go out casting out demons, healing people, and teaching people about the kingdom of God. They're putting into practice the things that they're learning from their rabbi. Do you know what the early Christians were called? They weren't called Christians. In fact, the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament, and every time it's used as a derogatory term. It means little Christ. In the New Testament, when they're referred to as Christians, it's almost in a sense like, oh, you little Christs. It's a derogatory term. Only over time did it become the name for what we claim to be, because we all want to be little Christs, right? But the term that is used 27 times in the New Testament, the vast majority in Acts, to describe the early Christians was that they were called followers of the way. That's what they were called. Paul said, I persecuted the way. That was the name of the religion, the way. And Jesus' disciples were called followers of the way. Which makes sense, because what Jesus brought us was a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of being. That's what Jesus came to bring us. And that's what he taught his disciples. Now, what is the way? The most simple yet profound explanation of what this way was is described to us by Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. So turn there in your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Because I I don't want you to just hear this. But I want you to see it. With your own eyes. Matthew chapter 11. I want you to hear me just read it. I want you to see it. And God, I pray that you feel it. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is easy is light. In these turbulent times with all the chaos going on in the world, with the whirlwind that we've created in American religion of doing and striving and going and fighting and pushing, what could be more precious to us than the promise that if we come to Him, we will find rest for our souls? Do you know what a yoke is? We've got a picture of a yoke that we'll throw up here. So you see, these are two ox or whatever they are. The wooden thing in the middle is a yoke, right? It would, it would connect these two oxen together. So as they drug the plow, one of them wouldn't get ahead of the other. You know, one wouldn't go too fast and mess everything up. They would keep the same pace, right? It was meant to keep them together, keep them going in a straight line, keep them going at the same rhythm, right? And if you go to the next picture, that, that's the, the, the thing that I'm talking about, the wooden thing that goes in the middle, right? So when Jesus says... That if we come to him, we're to take his yoke upon him. What he is saying is that we need to align our lives with his. We need to take the same pace that he did. We need to adopt the same rhythms that he did. And what's wonderful about this is that he's right there connected to us. 
He's right there with us doing this alongside us. And the one we follow, who we emulate, who we walk alongside, has described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Meaning that he's not going to be sitting there next to you when you fail, just dragging you along, saying, come on, Chris, you slow me down, get your act together. He's not going to do that. In fact, Jesus says, he promises that this burden is so easy and so light that instead of a burden, what you will receive is rest. And not only rest for your body, but rest for your souls. Now, if there's a message that our chaotic, fast-paced, whirlwind culture needs to hear, it's this, that a good, gentle, lowly in heart king is inviting you to do life alongside him. And by following his way, you will not enter into a burden, but you will enter into rest. This is what Jesus invited his disciples to. Now, we don't have time to get into all of it because that would take ages, but the way of Jesus following him included certain habits and practices of his that we see from scriptures that he also taught the disciples. So we see that he frequently retreated to silence and solitude, right? And so when was the last time he did that? Especially those of you with young kids. It's very hard to do, but Jesus made it a habit. He made it a habit to frequently get away to the alone, to the quiet, to pray with God. This was something, this was a habit of his. This was a rhythm of his. He frequently retreated to silent solitude. He was devoted to the study and the teaching of the scriptures. He observed Sabbath and the rest that comes along with it. He was generous and he invested his life into others, what we call discipleship. All of these and many, many more are part of the way that Jesus came to show us, the way of living. We call these spiritual disciplines, but another term that I like to refer to them by is they are means of grace. Because the more and more that we adopt the lifestyle and practices of Jesus, the more we will experience the grace that comes along with those practices, which, as Jesus tells us, is rest for our souls. So, for example, about two months ago, something that we, my wife and I instituted in our home is every Saturday we observe Sabbath rest, and it is awesome. It's like bathrobes all day, drinking coffee. We don't do nothing, and we're drinking coffee all day. We watch TV. We'll read the Bible. We'll study. We'll worship together. We'll, we'll be with our children. We reserve that time to do nothing. We rest. And listen, as a, as a pastor that is going to school, that has a family, that has a business, it is very hard. It, it's taken a very long time for me to take that time and set aside to do nothing. But I will tell you, let me tell you, that Sunday through Friday grind is so much easier when you know that Sabbath is coming. It's almost as if Jesus knew what he was talking about. When he said, hey, you should work six days and rest one. I don't know. It's been a game changer for us. But anyway, so the obvious application question at this point is, how do you feel about your Christian life? And be honest with yourself. I say this to our small group all the time. You are not fooling anyone. You can try to fool yourself, but you're not going to, and you're certainly not going to fool God. So be honest with yourself and be honest before God. How do you feel about your Christian life? Is it a burden? Does it feel like it's too much to bear? Are you striving and fighting and you just feel like you're not getting anywhere? Then might I suggest that you've yoked yourself not to Jesus, but to religion? Not to grace, but to works? 
not to peace, but to striving, you may not be following the way that Jesus shows us. And if that's the case for you, then you need to hear the second part of this message. We've just looked at the way of Jesus. Now we need to look at the truth of Jesus. So look again at the rest of the passage in Mark chapter 2, starting at this time in verse 15. So flip back to Mark chapter 2. I know you may still be in Matthew, but go back to Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." In first century Judaic culture, sharing a meal with someone was a sign of intimacy and very deep fellowship. It was a way that you showed that you loved someone. There were two ways to share meals, and it seems kind of strange to us today, but that's the way it was. There was an informal way of sharing a meal with someone, and there was a very formal way of sharing a meal with someone. The informal way of sharing a meal was to stand together at the table and eat, right? So you could be on guard kind of thing. But the the more formal, intimate way of sharing a meal with someone was by reclining at the table to sit, right? And that's what they're doing here. It was a gesture of sitting back, letting your guard down, opening yourself up and saying, I'm completely available to you. And the Jews considered eating an incredibly intimate form of fellowship because all five senses are involved in that act. Sight, smell, taste, feeling, hearing. In other words, all of you was involved in eating. So by formally eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus was defying the cultural conventions of his day that the rabbis were not supposed to associate so intimately with those who were unclean. Now the Pharisees catch wind of this, And check this out, they didn't even investigate the matter or confront Jesus themselves. It says in Texas, it says that the scribes of the Pharisees asked the disciples of Jesus. So you've got those that are under the Pharisees going to those that are under Jesus that are saying, hey, what's what's going on over here? Like, what what you guy doing, right? They haven't directly confronted him yet. And so far in the Gospel of Mark, there hasn't been a direct confrontation with the Pharisees yet. This is kind of the first wind that we see that the Pharisees are kind kind of, you know, turning up their nose and turning up their eyebrows at what Jesus is doing. They said, why is your rabbi associating with such horrible and vile people? But Jesus' answer, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Now remember how rabbis in that day chose their disciples. They looked for the best of the best. But Jesus is here flipping their whole paradigm of discipleship upside down. Whereas you look for the best of the best, I'm looking for the worst of the worst. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus knew what he was saying when he said this. He was directly calling them out. He was telling them that their whole system of doing things was wrong. Now, if you want to cause a ruckus... You go into a church and you tell the pastor, hey, everything that you're doing here is completely wrong. And Stephen's going to be at the back after the service. (laughs) I'm just the worship pastor. I'm not leaping. But now listen, here's what you need to hear. Here's Here's what we need to get from this. Jesus's invitation to you is not based one small ounce upon your own merit or your own ability, 
but completely upon his grace. The teaching of the Pharisees was that only the best of the best had access to God. But here, God incarnate is ignoring the best of the best to go after the worst of the worst. The Pharisees were perpetuating an incorrect idea that you had to be good enough before you could come to God. And this was a demonic teaching that originated straight from the devil himself. Jesus says in John 8, 44, and speaking of the Pharisees, he tells them, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character because he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Jesus is equating the teaching of the Pharisees to the teaching of Satan. And what Satan teaches is lies. He plants incorrect ideas into our minds about what religion is, about what sex is, what gender and love and respect and success and happiness are. And through the culture and the post-Christian society that we live in, he implants ideas into our minds about how, we, about how we can get to God, how we can enjoy him, and how we can get to him. These ideas are lies, and we buy into them hook, line, and sinker. And we wonder why we're so miserable. Dallas Willard, he talks about this very thing in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says this, he says, When Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. It was with an idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. Satan told her a lie because he's the father of lies. I wonder how many of you here are unintentionally buying into the same idea. I know none of you do it intentionally. None of us do. I've bought into lies unintentionally. I've got the best of intentions, and I know you do too. But I wonder how many of us are unintentionally buying into the same idea that we need to take matters into our own hands. And if you're sitting here today under the yoke of the Pharisees, thinking that you have to be good enough, that you have to measure up, that you have to outperform, outdo, that you have to overwork yourself to come to God, you need to be rid of that idea. That idea needs to be destroyed. And in fact, destroying these false ideas and replacing them with the truth is what Jesus came to do. 1 John 3, 8 says this, that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Every lie, every false idea, every incorrect thought, Jesus came to correct. He came to show us the way, and he came to tell us the truth, that all who are willing to surrender to him can enter into his kingdom. And you don't need to clean yourself up. First, you just need to come to him. That access to the Father, access to freedom, rest for your souls, this is available to you at no cost of your own. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will allow him to partake of the water of life freely without cost. Now, the lie is that you need to get your act together. That you need to be good enough. But the truth that you need to latch on to is that Jesus came for sinners not the righteous. The entrance requirements for the kingdom of God are merely to admit that you don't deserve to enter it, and then you're in. So in conclusion, I want to point out one other thing to you. And this is a deceptively simple statement. 
So don't let it just like rush past you. I'm plagiarizing it because I can't remember who I heard it from. Um, so if whoever said this is listening, I will give you credit if you will tell me who said it. But I've heard it said like a, a lot, so maybe it's just like one of those cliche things that goes around. I don't know. But it's deceptively simple, right? So, so I'm just putting that out there. But listen, your current life, the current life that you live right now is the byproduct of your current lifestyle. Your current life is the byproduct of your current lifestyle. Now, if you want the life of Jesus, the life that he demonstrated for us, a life of peace, a life of joy, a life of rest for your soul, if you want the life of Jesus, then you need to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And don't think that what I'm inviting you to is work, okay? That's certainly not the case. One of the good things about being married to somebody who's smarter than you is that you get to quote them all the time. And my wife is absolutely brilliant, as I'm sure a lot of you know. And she said something one time that I will probably quote for the rest of my life, and I'll give her credit for it, because she said it, and it was just absolutely brilliant. She said something along these lines. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, all of our obligations became privileges. Brilliant is that. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, all of our obligations became privileges. The work is done. There's nothing else that you need to do. He did it. He fulfilled righteousness. He fulfilled the law. And he did it all on your behalf. There's no more work for you to do. There are only privileges for you to enjoy. Jesus isn't expecting you to measure up to some standard. He wants to grab you and lift you up to his standard. He's not expecting you to become some kind of righteous person. He wants to give you his righteousness. The reason that Jesus Christ will accept you as you are, sinner, dirty, unclean, failure that you are, is because he knows what he will make you to be one day. He sees the future you. This is the invitation of Jesus to take his yoke upon you, to learn from him, to become his disciple, to live the way that he lived and do the things that he did. And he promises you and I promise you, and I'm sure there's an untold numbers of people in this room that will promise you that if you will do this, you will find rest for your soul. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus was saying is that to get to the Father, you have to follow a certain way. You have to believe a certain truth, and you have to live a certain life. And Jesus says that all of these requirements are found in him and in him alone. Eugene Peterson said it this way. He said, it's the way of Jesus wedded with the truth of Jesus that produces the life of Jesus. And listen, again, this is an invitation, okay? The cool thing about discipleship to Jesus being an invitation is that you don't have to have everything figured out, okay? You don't. Bring your skepticism, Bring your doubts, bring your worries and your failures, your fears, your concerns, bring your worst. Because that's what Jesus wants. He came to call sinners. 
You know, Jesus' disciples, they spent three years with him, learning from him, following him, learning his truth, learning his way. They spent three years doing this before they professed him to be the Son of God. You don't have to have all of this figured out. Put his way to the test. Follow him. And along the way, I think that what you'll find is, hey, this Jesus guy was right when he said that loving my enemies would bring healing to my soul. He was right when he said that humility was the path to success. He was right when he said that putting others before myself would bring me joy. Perhaps maybe he was right about being the son of God, too. Jesus is the way, and he is inviting you to follow him. He is the truth, and he is inviting you to learn from him. And he is the life, and he is inviting you to find life in him. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the example that you have given us in Jesus Christ. That the invitation to follow him is not one that places a burden upon us. It's not any work that we need to do. It's not any standard of righteousness that we need to measure up to. But it is purely and simply coming to him, acknowledging who we are, that we can't live up to his expectations, but that he did for us. I know of no other grace than this and to know that we bring our worst and you give us your best. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and your mercy that you've shown me. I pray that you would show it even now. Lord, would you come? We ask in Jesus' name.